This is the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast, brought to you by Heather Rose Jones. The show looks at lesbian and sapphic themes in history and literature, and historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past. We present research, interviews, news of the field, book listings, and original historical fiction for your enjoyment. For even more historic research, check out our blog, Welcome to On the Shelf for March 2024. The On the Shelf episodes vary a lot in terms of how much content I have. I wouldn't have predicted that the new book listings would be the one constant back when I set up this format. They weren't even part of the template originally. But after a couple of bare-bones months, we have a lot to talk about this month. First off is announcing the fiction lineup for this year. One of the ways I measure the success of this fiction series is whether I've attracted a true diversity of voices and stories. This year, I'm feeling very happy about that aspect. I haven't sorted out the order in which they'll appear, because that can depend on when I locate appropriate narrators. But in no particular order, we'll be publishing the following. The Font of Liberty by Elizabeth Porter Birdsall Set in 1830s France, the denizens of a publishing house deal with political activism and censorship. And I love the little font pun in the title. A Very Long Malaise by L.J. Lee, Romantic and Political Intrigue in Korea of the Joseon Dynasty, circa 1790. Follow the Monkey by Jamie McGee. Survival and Hope in Colonial Brazil during the rise of Quilombo dos Palmares, a hidden society of escaped slaves who took up arms against Portuguese colonists. Daughters of Derbyshire by Daniel Stride. When plague sweeps through 17th century Derbyshire, what does it mean to be a good neighbor? I'm going to need to work very hard to find the right narrators for the Korean and Afro-Brazilian stories. Ideally, the narrator would not simply be comfortable with the language proper names, and some incidental vocabulary, but would also share that background. All help in leads for potential narrators will be welcome. Listeners are probably aware that I'm fairly active in the science fiction and fantasy community, and wow has the chatter been going at full volume in the last month. The very short version, for those who don't read my blog regularly, is that the nomination data for the Hugo Awards that were just given out last year when Worldcon was held in China finally was released, and it was immediately apparent from the data that something very strange had happened. In fact, several different very strange things happened, and the people who knew the most about what happened, who, by the way, were non-Chinese members of the convention committee, were not providing much in the way of useful explanation. Now, Poking at strange data and trying to figure out how it got that strange is not only something I enjoy, but is also much of what I do for a living. So along with a number of other people, I started poking at the data and published a few blogs about what I observed, both on my own and in collaboration with another data geek. This has taken up a fair amount of my so-called free time in the last few weeks. At this point, it's clear that there were several types of data manipulation going on that not only resulted in some specific people and publications being removed from the Hugo ballot, but that appear to have systematically suppressed the number of Chinese publications and people from appearing on a ballot that should by all rights have seen them significantly represented. 
Needless to say, there are people working diligently on making sure that nothing like this can happen again. Book awards can get an unwarranted amount of attention sometimes. There are always many more excellent books being published than there are awards to recognize that excellence. But if the awards are going to mean anything, the process needs to be transparent and reliable. And last year's Hugos definitely were not. It will take a while for the community to recover from this. If you want to know more, there's a link in the show notes to the article Charting the Cliff, which covers many of the issues. Given all that, perhaps I'll be forgiven for only blogging two publications for the Lesbian Historic Motif Project in last month. One is the pop history book I mentioned buying last month, A Short History of Queer Women by Kirsty Lore. As I indicated previously, it's light and fluffy and not very solid on the history, but it could be a fun read. The second item was the article Mistress and Maid, Homoeroticism, Cross-Class Desire, and Disguise in 19th Century Fiction by Kirsty Bohada which I read when I was working on the Tropes episode about employment-based romances. Shopping netted me one new book this month, The Illustrated Journeys of Celia Fiennes, 1685-1712. These are the travel journals of a woman who traveled by herself through all the counties of England in the late 17th century. By herself, meaning with servants, of course. I love this sort of source material for women who did things that run contrary to the historic stereotypes. Not necessarily women who are breaking the rules or becoming social outlaws, but simply ordinary things that get erased from the popular view of women's history. And, of course, this specific book will be added to the background reading for my planned Restoration Era series. And speaking of writing, let's look at the new and recent books. I found five titles from the last few months that I hadn't identified previously, five March books, and then three titles that I'll mention in the Other Books of Interest segment. First up, we have an American West romance, Above Rubies, by Finn Alexander from JMS Books. The year is 1885, and all Mae Jacobson wants is a home of her own and a woman to love. Leaving behind her poor immigrant family, she claims her 160 acres under the Homestead Act in Dakota Territory. Life on the farm is lonely, and there seems no hope of meeting the right woman, or any woman, with her inclinations. That is, until an itinerant seamstress arrives in town. When wealthy Boston socialite Temperance Lowell decides to take her sewing machine and travel the rails staying in different towns, she is seeking adventure while escaping Boston, where the woman she was having an affair with is getting married. The last thing she expects is to meet a tall, shy woman wearing men's clothes to whom she is instantly attracted. Not only does their attachment cause an uproar in the town of Livingston, especially among the men who were already hostile to a woman like May, and were more interested in the beautiful and elegant temperance, but it confuses May, who, in her own words, is as common as the dirt I dig. Temperance, a little older and very sure of herself, knows May as the woman for her. Can they make a life together in a rough town among farming folk? Will their love survive the challenges thrown in their way? Next is another romance with a Western setting. Silver Heels, Women of the Wild West by Olivia Hampton. Sabrina was born into wealth and privilege, but after she's forced to run for her life, she finds herself in the newly formed Colorado Territory and in the town of Big Antler. 
becoming Silver, one of the most popular entertainers on the stage of a seedy theater named The Pearl, was never going to be Sabrina's first choice for an escape plan. But that's exactly where she ends up. Maddie's spent most of her life in boomtowns. She's always ready to gamble, just not with her heart. No woman can tie her down. No town can keep her interest for long. A past filled with scars and a need for adventure keeps her on the run. The masked and mysterious silver and her devastatingly sexy high-heeled shoes gets Maddie's attention and fast. The sparks fly faster, but love is dangerous. So is the man hunting for Sabrina. Will they risk it all for love and each other, or will they fold under the pressure of their pasts and secrets? The cover copy for this next book feels a bit over the top, so don't be surprised if it doesn't quite match the hype. Whispers in the Shadows, the untold story of a love that defied convention by Haley Ruby. Step into the enthralling world of Whispers in the Shadows, a captivating novel that transcends time and convention. This extraordinary tale, set against the backdrop of Victorian England, unveils the forbidden romance between Amelia, a woman of high society, and Charlotte, a spirited artist. Their story is a powerful testament to the enduring strength of love amidst societal constraints. In the midst of London's rigid societal norms, Amelia and Charlotte's paths cross in a fateful encounter that ignites a passion both profound and forbidden. As they navigate the complexities of their hidden relationship, they confront not only personal conflicts, but also the pressures of a society unwilling to accept their love. From secret meetings in moonlit gardens to the grand masquerade balls of London, their journey is one of courage, defiance, and unwavering commitment. There's an author's advisory for Lies That Bind by Ray Knowles and April Yates from Bridgesgate Press that indicates it contains graphic sex and violence and potentially abusive situations. Laura Lee Keyes and Adele Hughes are content, if not entirely happy, running a sham seance business in the English tourist town of Matlock Bath. Lorelei's business savvy and Adele's gift for mimicry provide for their basic needs, but the customers are not the only ones deceived. With the arrival of a mysterious visitor, Viola, the couple finds their long-held secrets under threat of exposure and their quiet life upended. Viola pulls the pair onto a transatlantic crossing bound for Adele's homeland of New York, and the turbulent seas are nothing compared to the treacherous and tawdry happenings aboard the ship. Adele's gifts run much deeper than mimicry. Lorelei's past is more depraved than she lets on. The couple faces the end of their romance, and may stand to lose much more than that if they cannot discern Viola's true intentions before reaching their final destination. Not for the faint of heart, lies that bind, challenges its readers as it investigates power dynamics, the nature of power, and the ways it can be expressed, whether by domination or self-acceptance, treachery or honesty. It feels like there's been a regular theme of sapphic historicals featuring female boxers in the last couple of years. This one also tosses in some paranormal elements and is part of a series set in an alternate 1920s world with magic, but it's the only sapphic entry in the series. Of Socialites and Prizefights, Flos Magicae, by Arden Powell. When Deepa Patel rejects the wrong man, he curses her. Every night she will transform into a wild animal until her curse is broken by true love's kiss. The problem is twofold. One, 
Deepin needs her knights to seduce shallow men into spending money on her, money she desperately needs to buy herself and her mother a better life. Two, she doesn't believe in love. She's never met a man she wanted to keep longer than a week, never mind forever. She never considered her true love might be a woman. Ross is unlike any of Deepa's past suitors. She's working class, with a nose that's been broken at least once, courtesy of an underground boxing club. And she makes Deepa feel lighter and softer than she ever thought possible. But Roz can't afford to give Deepa the life of luxury she craves. Meanwhile, Deepa is posing as a wealthy nobleman's fiancée. There's no love between them, but his lifestyle is everything she's ever wanted. Caught between a real relationship and a loveless fake one, Deepa has to choose. Give up on her dreams for a chance at true love, or make her dreams come true, but stay cursed forever. Due to the advanced scheduling dynamics of indie books versus books from publishers, the March books are mostly the latter. First up is a historic fantasy from this month's author guest, Song of the Huntress, by Lucy Holland from Macmillan. Britain, 60 AD. Hoping to save her lover and her land from the Romans, Herla makes a desperate pact with the Otherworld King. She becomes Lord of the Hunt, and for centuries she rides, reaping wanderers' souls. Until the night she meets a woman on a bloody battlefield, a Saxon queen with ice-blue eyes. Queen Ethelberg of Wessex is a proven fighter, but after a battlefield defeat, she finds her husband's court turning against her. Yet King Ina needs Ethel more than ever. The dead kings of Wessex are waking, and Ina must master his bloodline's ancient magic if they are to survive. When their paths cross, Herla knows it's no coincidence. Something dark and dangerous is at work in the Wessex court. As she and Ethel grow closer, Herla must find her humanity and a way to break the curse before it's too late. Pelican Girls by Julia Malia from Harper has that dancing around the topic language that sometimes leads me to place a book in the other books of interest category if I can't be certain of the sapphic content. But early reviews indicate that there's a romance between two of the female characters. For those who keep track, this falls more in the literary genre. Paris, 1720. La Salpetriere Hospital is in crisis. Too many occupants, not enough beds. Halfway across the world, France's colony in the wilds of North America has space to spare and needs families to fill it. So the director of the hospital rounds up nearly a hundred female volunteers of childbearing age, orphans, prisoners, and mental patients, to be shipped to New Orleans. Among this group are three unlikely friends, a sharp-tongued twelve-year-old orphan, a mute madwoman, and an accused abortionist. Charlotte, Petronille, and Geneviève, along with the dozens of other women aboard La Belaine, have no knowledge of what lies ahead and no control over their futures. Strangers brought together by fate, these brave and fierce young women will face extraordinary adversity. Pirates, slave drivers, sickness, war, but also the private trauma of heartbreak and unrequited love, children born and lost, cruelty and unexpected pleasure, and a friendship forged in fire that will sustain through the years. Stacy Lynn Miller's Speakeasy series from Bella Books continues with a third volume, Last Barrel. Three years after Whiskey War, Dax and Rose lived the high life at the Foster House, running the poshest speakeasy on the West Coast. Half Moon Bay is about to claim its place as the top tourist destination in Northern California, with a second club and the remodeled Seaside Hotel under Grace Parsons' ownership and Dax's management. 
Repeal of prohibition is on the horizon with the prospect of making their illegal liquor business legitimate. Dax's fractured friendship with Charlie Dawson is the only blowback from her battle with Frankie Wilkes. If she could fix it, her life with Rose would be perfect. Or so Dax thinks, until an election sweeps in, Rye Wilkes as the new county sheriff. With the law behind him, he's hell-bent on revenge for the death of his brother in the wake of the Whiskey War and puts everyone involved in his crosshairs. On day one, he wreaks havoc in Half Moon Bay with arrests and beatings. Nothing is off the table. No one close to Dax and Rose is safe, and they must leverage every resource to protect the people they love. How far will Dax go? Will beating Wilkes at his game come at too high a price? Who will survive to open the last barrel? Another book in a continuing series is The Weavers of Alamaxa, Alamaxa Number 2, by Hadir Elspai from Harper Voyager. This series is inspired by Egyptian history, although set in a world with fantasy elements. The world is on fire, but some women can control it. The Daughters of Izdihar, a group of women fighting for the vote and against the patriarchal rule of parliament, have finally made strides in having their voices heard only to find them drowned out by the cannons of the fundamentalist Ziranis. As long as Alamaxa continues to allow for the elemental magic of the weavers and insist on allowing an academy to teach such things, the Zirani will stop at nothing to end what they perceive as a threat to not only their way of life, but the entire world. Two such weavers, Nehal and Georgina, had come together, despite their differences, to grow both their political and weaving power. But after the attack, Nahal wakes up in a Zorani prison, and Georgina is on the run in her besieged city. If they can reunite again, they can rally Alamaxa to fight off the encroaching Zorani threat. Yet with so much in their way, including a contingent of Zorani insurgents with their own ideas about rebellion, this will be no easy task. And the last time a weaver fought back, the whole world was shattered. Two incredible women are all that stands before an entire army, but they've fought against power before and won. This time, though, it's no longer about rhetoric. This time it's about magic and blood. We finish up with a book in Portuguese, Julieta e Cinderella by Vicky Flores, which blends the characters of Cinderella and Shakespeare's Juliet from jo Romeo and Juliet, set in 19th century Verona. Juliet Capulet is devastated when she discovers that her family arranged her engagement to Romeo Montague with the intention of ending the bloody feud between the families. But on her first visit to the Montague house, she meets Cinderella, the family's maid, who wins her heart with generosity. Divided by class and background, the two find connection, even as the engagement progresses. But the Montagues can be brutal when crossed. And while we're talking about non-English books, and I have a couple more on the list for the near future, I'll mention that the French translation of my book, Daughter of Mystery, is also coming out in March after being pushed back for production changes. I put three titles in the Other Books of Interest section, not because there's any question of the sapphic content, but because they appear to fall more in the erotica category than the historic fiction category. I try to find balance here. One of the reasons I generally exclude erotica is because if I don't set my search terms to exclude it, I end up wading through an awful lot of male gaze content that only has the barest acquaintance with historic settings. 
Even when written for the lesbian market, erotica rarely has a solid historic grounding, tending to fall much further into the fantasy side of the line. But three titles popped up in my search that some listeners might be inclined to check out further. Coming of Age, Bintanath No. 1, by Joan Finelli, is set in the Egypt of the ancient pharaohs and combines the supernatural with a lesbian relationship. Jewels of the Harem, Love's Secret Treasures, by Lucilla Lee, is set in the harem of the Ottoman palace of Topkapi. In general, I'd be wary of Orientalist harem fantasies if you're looking for solid representation of historic cultures. And the same author has released Victorian Passions, Lesbian Romance Amidst Historical Intrigue, which is more or less what it says on the label. What have I been reading in the past month? One of the books that got caught up in the Hugo Award shenanigans was R.F. Quang's historic fantasy Babel, about linguistic-based magic and 19th century colonialism. It's a very powerful book with an ending that found the right balance between tragedy and grim determination. As a linguist, I really enjoyed the magical premise. An audiobook sale led me to pick up another one of K.J. Charles' packlist, The Secret Case of Simon Fexmall. I always enjoy Charles's work, but this one didn't grab me as much as many of her other books. A different audiobook sale inspired me to get Courtney Milan's historic romance, The Duke Who Didn't. I'm having some interesting thoughts about what does and doesn't throw me out of a historic romance due to listening to this while also being in the middle of Emma R. Albin's Don't Want You Like a Best Friend. Both books are set in the Victorian period. Both are very engagingly written. And both present characters that feel entirely like modern people dressed up in costume. Usually, that's a nope for me, and it's sort of a problem for me in both these books, except I enjoy the quality of the writing enough that I'm just pretending they're actually contemporaries with a few quirks. But I'm not enjoying them as historic romances. I had a similar issue with Erica Ridley's The Perks of Loving a Wallflower and Jane Walsh's Her Countess to Cherish. Except those two didn't sweep me up in the writing and story enough for me to be able to ignore the modern attitudes and behaviors. And the non-sapphic historical mystery, Death Below Stairs, by Jennifer Ashley, had solid writing chops, but that didn't make up for the character failing historic plausibility for me. Although in that case it was slightly different from a modern character, simply one that didn't make sense in her own time. So I've been pondering the interactions of these elements in terms of which directions a book can fail me, and still leaving me glad I'd read it. We'll finish up this month's episode with an interview with Lucy Holland. I'm here with Lucy Holland to talk about her new novel, Song of the Huntress. Why don't you start by giving us a brief synopsis of the book? Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, Song of the Huntress draws on Celtic mythology to reimagine the wild hunt myth. It recasts Hurla, the main character, the main protagonist of the myth, um, into a, an Iceni war chief uh, who is sworn to Boudicca. Um, and she travels to the other world to make a pact with its king. Instead of returning with the power to defeat the Romans as she had hoped, 
Um, Herler finds instead that centuries have passed in the real world and that Boudicca and the rest of the Iceni tribe are long dead uh, and that she herself is cursed to ride eternally. Uh, so the story picks up from there, really, um, that anyone familiar with the, the original Wild Hunt myth will will know that kind of the bare bones of that story. Uh, but I very much wanted to, to make it mine. And then she comes into the middle of uh, Anglo-Saxon history and gets involved in politics. She really does. Yes. Most of the novel is set in around 705 AD in Wessex, um, kind of the heartland of, uh, well, Saxon heartland. Uh, there's still anyone who's familiar with Sister Song will recognise uh, quite a few other kind of place names that Tintagel pops up again. Um, the Dumnoni, uh, the main tribe from Sister Song, are also featured. And it's just, it's set about 180 years after Sister Song and it shares a world space with Sister Song. So um, while it's not necessary to read Sister Song to enjoy this book, I think if you do, you might just get that extra layer. I was wondering if there was a connection in some way with Sister Song, because I know there, there are different eras and, and different... You know, different cultural contexts they're coming out of. But one thing that they share evidently is uh, the presence of queer characters. And in Indeed. this song, I you did a lovely take on how to imagine a trans character in an early medieval setting. Uh, so could you talk about the queer elements in Song of the Huntress? Yes, absolutely. Very happy because this is what I do. Um, I'm very committed to... Um, kind of reseeding queer identity into historical settings. And historical fantasy is a really great genre to do that um, because it just provides that little bit more flexibility uh, to kind of reimagine situations well, just a little bit differently. I mean, this one, all, all three protagonists of Huntress are queer. Um, her herself is a lesbian. Uh, Queen Ethelberg is bisexual and Ein, her husband, is ace. Uh, and the the asexual story was very important to me because I just don't see very many ace characters um, in specific specifically in historical fiction. Um, they just seem to be thin on the ground. Um, what was um, very interesting to me is uh, the the putting Herla aside for a minute, who who kind of strolled fully formed into this story, rode I should say she rode a, a dead tilt into this story. Um, Athel and Ein, who were real historical king and queen of Wessex during this period. After I read a little bit about them, um, I found out that Athel, Athelberg, really, you know, was, it was considered to be a, a female warrior, which is quite unusual amongst the Anglo-Saxons of that period. Um, she'd certainly sacked Taunton, which was one of her husband's fortresses. Very interesting story there. I'd like to know a bit more about that. And that does feature in the book. But what really intrigued me was the fact that, especially if you, you know, if you read, if you're familiar with anything like the, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is like an enormous piece of propaganda, uh, as well, unfortunately, it's also our only historical document, major historical document of that time. Um, it was written several hundred years later. Um, you'll find that they didn't have well if they had children that sh any of their children didn't they didn't become king they didn't the succession didn't pass to any of their children um and there could be many many reasons for this there could be that you know the children died in infancy that was very common it could be that they just were you know unable to have children um but i i saw that historical tidbit and thought okay that's an interesting fact 
what does that tell me about a situation where, you know, could, could this leave uh, room for queer identities? You know, is this a place that I can then kind of step in and say, well, maybe this was how it was? You know, of course, it's, you know, this is it's it's fantasy as well as history. Um, but I looked at this couple and I thought they have an interesting relationship and maybe, you know, their their childless situation and the pressure on them both to produce an heir you know, could give me some, you know, openings to kind of explore their identities. And and that's, you know, part of, uh, you know, Song of the Hunters is, is a big kind of epic fantasy in a way. It's a lot of, you know, there's the other world, there's there's corrupt princes, uh, there's, there's dead kings. But it's also quite an intimate story about a marriage, about two people who, you know, whose identities, they're, both of them are unable to fully explore who they are sexually, romantically. Um, they're both living in a society that is is constrained massively. Well, I mean, we still live in a very binary society that has very strict uh, gender roles assigned to everyone still after all these years. Um, but very much they that was even worse for both of them. And and I kind of wanted to look at not just the, the restrictions put on women, but also those put on men, especially on men who, you know, didn't uh, totally conform to the sort of alpha male, um, you know, the, the the sort of image that you see in Beowulf, you know, that those sorts of men, warriors, taking what they want when they want it. What inspired you to write historic settings? Is this, I mean, when did you fall in love with history? Because clearly you have a deep and abiding love affair with history. I do. And um, it's a really interesting question because I took history at A-level and did abysmally at it. Um, I think it's because I approached it creatively instead of analytically. Um, and uh, that is probably because I, I look at history and I see stories. I see individual stories. Um, the History is, as you know, to quote the history boys, just one fucking thing after another. And um, which I've always loved. But I, I feel very... Um, yeah, I, I, th I think it's particularly ancient history, maybe more so than like looking back into kind of Victorian or I mean, that's that's a popular history to revisit, a period to revisit. Uh, Tudors are a popular period to revisit. But I think because I've all I, I came from writing fantasy, I've always written fantasy. And for me, um, after writing epic fantasy, I wrote a, a trilogy of epic fantasy books. Um, I fell out of love a little bit with that genre. And um, when I had the idea for Sister Song, I thought, how can I tell this a little differently? Like, what can I do to challenge myself? Could I expand outwards into a genre that I haven't really dabbled with before? And I've always just been, as I said, I'm really fascinated with with historical periods, though I wasn't very good at researching. Um, now I'm, I feel like I'm maybe have learned a bit from writing two historical fantasy novels. Um, but I learned so much. I learned so much about my own country and the identity of, of the British specifically um, while writing both of these books. Um, and I'm, I'm going into another one. Uh, hopefully I can sell that next year and tell you more about it. And I, I'm not slowing down. I, I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of this time period. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. And I agree that... Uh... Older history, I think it leaves more space for being creative in it. You know, when there are so many more things that we don't know, you know, there's just this bare skeletal framework of the facts on the ground. And, and I think that can be a context where building your own stories within it feels feels easier. 
I've said this before, and it's completely true. There is that wonderful period, which I mean, now I would call it the Celtic heroic age. Um, but it, it that it also kind of proceeds right through that the, the Anglo Saxon period, later periods up to Alfred. Um, this this sort of uh, early medieval era, which leaves so much room for um, you know for reimagining because. It's already kind of half legend. It's where history and legend meet and the lines become blurred and no one can say exactly what happened and who was alive then. I mean, if you ask some people on the street, you say, tell me about King Arthur. A, a surprising percentage of people will say that he was a real king. Like, mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah, of course he was. Of course he was a real king. And, like, we have no real proof that Arthur existed he was possibly more likely to be a kind of amalgamation of a folk hero and various um, prominent historical figures who we do have some information for Um, but I find that fascinating I find the fact that you can't quite pin down where the truth is and what and what happened and it's such a fertile ground for for writers like me who like to come in and 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 smear fantasy all over the history which is (laughs) I'm, I am I'm unapologetic about, but I think they go, they slot together so beautifully. Yes. So you have a podcast, uh, well, you and your friends have a podcast of your own called Breaking the Glass Slipper that I think my listeners might be interested in in some cases. Why don't you pitch your podcast to my listeners? Well, Breaking the Glass Slipper, which is has a great name and I cannot take credit for it. That was Charlotte. Um, it's, a, it's a podcast that we say is a, an intersectional feminist cast that focuses on first originally women, but now also marginalised characters and creators in the realms of speculative fiction. So we cover fantasy, sci-fi, horror, folk horror, any sorts of um, fiction media cross media that that kind of features that in that sphere um and we've been going for well since 2016 um we like to publish uh, bi-monthly uh, every other thursday um and we kind of look at topics that we think are of interest to readers currently of of, of modern science fiction and fantasy um we like very much to talk to queer creators um, anyone who is, you know, the whole point of setting the podcast up was because we got tired of seeing best of lists constantly featuring either the token woman or, you know, a token person of colour or, you know, a token. It, it was ridiculous. Otherwise, you'd just be, you know, white men as far as you could see. And we got so tired of seeing this again and again. We were like, well, come on, all these creators are out here. Why aren't we hearing from them? You know, why aren't they on the shelves? Um, and so we've uh, we, we try to look thematically. So we work thematically. We'll have a, a new author on um, every every time. And we'll we've, we've each a couple before, actually. Um, but we'll look at their, you know, a theme in their work uh, and talk to them about that. And it's been a really eye opening. We've learned a lot ourselves about, you know, about the industry, um, about basically everything that everything that speculative fiction is capable of exploring, which is enormous. And one of the nice things about podcasting is you can sit there and say, hey, why isn't anyone talking about this? And look at your friends and say, we could start a podcast. <laughs> I mean, And I, that's what we did. It's yeah, great. I, I, That was me as well. It's like, how do I get this out in front of people? Well, I could start a podcast. 
so thank you so much for um, sharing your time uh, with the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. If people wanted to find you online or on social media, where should they look? I am the same handle across most social media platforms, which is Sylvan Historian, Sylvan with an I. Um, I'm mostly active on Instagram. Um, it's Blue Sky and, and Twitter. I refuse to call it anything else. Um, I am still there. But if you want to follow most of my um, my posts, Instagram is the place to find me. I also have a Patreon. So if you're interested in supporting my work, uh, you know, at a, at a greater depth, then um, I, uh, I I post regularly over there. And you have a website as well. And that is under your your legal name, Lucy Hounsom, which is also the name that you use on the podcast. That is true. And that's also the name I use for my fantasy trilogy. If anyone likes to, to go and check that out, the, the, law, the books that launched my career. <laughs> OK, well, thank you so much again. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been great talking about Huntress. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider supporting our Patreon 